If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 11. My name is Brad Cheney, senior pastor here. Delighted to be able to start a new sermon series this fall. We'll be uh, looking at the gospel as taught to us by our great, great, great spiritual grandfathers in the faith, beginning, as Shelton mentioned, with the patriarch Abraham. It's, in, it's incredible to, to think of this. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, uh, all three of those are referred to as the, the Abrahamic faiths. All three of them trace their roots back to a man that lived nearly 4,000 years ago, uh, 50 plus percent of the world's population traces their identity back to this man, and it begs the question, why Abraham? Why him? What makes Abraham so significant as an ancient or contemporary figure? And what we'll discover as we answer that question throughout the series is that the, the three faiths, the three religions, give three very different answers to that question. What is the significance? Why Father Abraham? Genesis 11, verse 27, we read now, These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, which would be modern-day Iraq. Um, Or if you refer to it in terms of the ancient empire, Babylonia, the Babylonian Empire. And Abram and Nahor, uh, Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, or but, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his uh, son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. There are lots of different theories as to why the the lifespans of the patriarchs and the Bible are as long as they are. um, 205 years for what it's worth. And, and Terah, Terah died in Haran. And this is the good part. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will, I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people the slaves that they had acquired in Haran 
and they set out to go to the land of Canaan, we will stop there. So Abraham shows up on the scene at age 75, and you notice in the, the narrative as it's written, there's no backstory. There's absolutely no information about Abraham in his early years, which has led a number of people, a large number of people to speculate what was going on in the, the life of Abraham. What, what is Abraham's birth story or his origins? Well, according to Jewish tradition, on the night that Abraham was born, a star, a great star passed through the sky and it swallows up four smaller stars and some of the king's royal officials, King Nimrod was his name, they, they go to the king and they say to him, O king, let, uh, we saw this and let us interpret this sign to you. This is what it means. The son of Terah has been born who will one day conquer your kingdom and change the religion of your land to another religion. Now, the king is disturbed by this report, understandably so. But instead of deciding to kill Abraham, he, he decides to buy him. So he sends those royal attendants to Terah and says, says Tell me, sell me your son and I will let you live. And Terah agrees, agrees to it. But at the very last moment... Terah performs kind of a switcheroo and instead of giving up his son Abraham, he substitutes the son of one of his slaves and he hides Abraham and Abraham's mother and, and they are rescued. So we wonder, what is the point of this, of this birth narrative? And it, the reason you tell a story like this is to prove that Abraham is very special. Like he's, he is different than from, from everybody else. There's, there's something truly truly remarkable about this boy that that kind of marks him out. The tradition continues. Terah was like pretty much every other person in the world of his day, a pagan who worshipped the sun and the stars and the moon. And in Islam, the tradition in Islam is that Abraham was the very first person in the history of the world to realize and recognize that there is only one God. Abraham was, as a boy, he looked up at the stars and he saw that they, they shone at night, but, but they disappeared during the day. And how, I mean, how can they be gods if they, if they fluctuate quite like that? And so he, Abraham, realizes at a very early age that there is only one God. He's the first monotheist of the world. And, and what is it, all of these little figurines that he's surrounded by of various gods idols everywhere in his world. And Terah, his father, was an idol maker. And so he goes in, I'm thinking he's around 20 years of age. He goes into his father's house and he smashes to bits all of his father's uh, idols, all of his father's gods. And his father comes home at the end of the day. Terah is furious. Look what you have done. And so Terah hands Abraham over to King Nimrod. (laughs) He gives him back. And the, the scene concludes as Abraham is walking into the royal palace, into the royal throne room of the king. The whole earth begins to shake and quake violently. And all of the idols that adorn the king's throne room, 
they fall to the ground and they, they crash violently to the ground. And then Abraham has his hands tied, bound in rope, and he's thrown into a fiery furnace and he survives that. And it's, I'm giving you too many details. But the point is, very important, that Abraham is uniquely virtuous among all the peoples of the world. The assumption is that if God is going to bless somebody as much as he does this man, then there must be something noteworthy or commendable about this man. And that is where, I hope you realize, that is where, at the very beginning of the Abraham story, our interpretation diverges from theirs. Because what we maintain is that Abraham was just a pagan like the rest of us. I'm in need of God's grace. And what's remarkable about Abraham's story is his unremarkability, if I could put it that way. And the reason that there is no backstory given on Abraham's life is because there was nothing there special to note. He was just like everybody else in his world. Um, a sinner uh, through and through, worshiping false gods. There's What's remarkable is that God would show to such an ordinary sinner such incredible kindness and love. And so that's, that's the difference for us at the very beginning. Um, it's not predicated on the virtue of Abraham. It's predicated, all of this, on, on the greatness of, of God's grace. Uh, as the story goes on, we discover, I could, I'll put it provocatively, Abraham is actually not that great of a guy. You think of Father Abraham as a really good fellow. Well, later on in chapter 12, there's a famine in the land. So Abraham takes his entire household down into Egypt to escape the famine in the land of Canaan. And he's, he's afraid, deathly afraid, that one of the, the natives... Egyptians is going to kill him because his wife Sarai is, is so beautiful. They may want her. And so what does he do? He sells his wife. She becomes a member of Pharaoh's harem. He's, he, good guys don't sell their wives, do they? He's not that good of a man. Then later on, the story, uh, he, uh, he, he re receives Sarah back and at, at some point, he takes Hagar, her, Sarah's servant. Because Sarah can't have children, Abraham decides to sleep with Hagar, it, use her as a concubine. She gets pregnant. She has a son. There's some very difficult family dynamics that take place. And so instead of trying to deal with all of those, what Abraham does with his new son and new concubine is he throws them onto the streets. He kicks them, uh, kicks them to the curb. This is not... He's not that impressive. Abraham is important. Abraham is not the father of faith because he's impressive. Abraham is important because he, this is God's divine plan to fix the world. God has decided to put the world back together through this sinner, through, to reveal himself as God through Abraham and through the family of Abraham and on page one, paragraph one, section one, the, the message is that it's all, it's all because of grace. Okay, look with me in, in verse one. 
Notice what God says. Um, now, having just maintained that Abraham is not such a good guy, I'm going to backtrack here and, and show you how he is kind of a special guy. Because we, we all know that Abraham, he's referred to, he's noteworthy for his faith. He is the, he's the man of great faith. Verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The, the old King James version of it says, literally, get thee out of your country. Just go. Go where? God says, I'll show you later. God does this a lot to Abraham. Your, your wife is old. She's barren. Yet you're going to have descendants as numerous as the, the grains of sand on the seashore. How will that happen? God says, I will show you later. Um, take your son Isaac up, this, up the mountain to sacrifice him on the mountain. Why should I do that? I'll show you later. There's this continual theme in Abraham's life that he is, he's not given all of the answers, but he he trusts. He goes. He has an obedient faith. Look what he leaves behind. He leaves behind his country, his land, his uh, uh, his vineyards, his home, his his favorite spit fishing spot, his your fa- your kindred. It says, "Go from your kindred, all of your social connections. Leave your father's house. Your father's house was your inheritance. It was it was everything." All of your social status and connections. Leave your family, leave your land. Where should I go? I'll, I'll show you. And he does it, and he's rightly commended for it. But what I want you to notice, if you were to read verses 1 through 5, and you were to highlight or ask the question, what is the dominant tone in the story here? The, 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 the dominant part is not... It's not Abraham's faith. It is the I will statements. Five I will verbs. I will. I will give you a land. I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will, I will bless those who, who bless you. It's the, the, the focus is on a God who makes, who piles up heap upon heap of outlandish promises. Who, who makes these promises that seem way too good to be true. God blesses his socks off. Sure, he says, go, and, and Abraham goes. But I mean, look what he's promised if he does go. God promises him the world. I'm reading a book that interviews three different characters, real men, a Roman Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, and Islamic imam. And they... The, the, the interviewer comes to him and, and says, what, what's the message that we should, what's the take-home message that we should get? What, what should we learn from Father Abraham? And so they go to the imam first. What I see here in Abraham's answering the call of Allah is that he doesn't even ask, show me more. He doesn't even argue back with Allah. He submits to the will of God. And you you may know that the word Muslim just it actually means one who submits to God. That's what we see here. We Abraham in Islamic tradition is the first Muslim because he's the first man who ever uh, completely and, and utterly submits himself entirely to the will of God. So then the interview goes goes next to the rabbi, and 
The rabbi says he has this interesting psychological take. He says, when I was in rabbinical school, I went to a psychologist, and the psychologist told me that the minute you grow up is the minute that it doesn't matter to you what your parents think of you. He says, I, I, th- I found that to be quite a revelation. You know, yes, I'm always supposed to love my parents, uh, but it's okay to leave your father's house and go someplace else. Uh, your parents might be disappointed in you. They might miss you a lot. But until you break away, you are not grown up. And Abraham is blessed because he has the courage to leave his father's house behind and his native land behind. He, he's sort of, I guess you could say he's the first psychologically um, whole adult in the Bible. That's what the rabbi says. Then they go thirdly to the Roman Catholic priest. And the priest says, The lesson of Abraham is that you have to be willing to risk it all. You have to give up everything for God. If your life is too comfortable, too secure, if you are too into having control, then you won't be ready or willing to trust God. And the Bible says that you have to trust God entirely. Even when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you must trust. You may not know where your next home is, but you have to trust me with every cell in your body. And when I read... I hope I'm not belaboring the, the, the three points. But when I read those, I thought there is validity in every one of those interpretations. And yet none of them actually capture the heart of the passage. It seems like every one of us have a tendency to read biblical narratives in a moralistic fashion. Um, These are stories or examples uh, that we're to be like Abraham or not be like Abraham. And that's oftentimes how we mistakenly teach our kids this in Sunday school. No, what we find, the hero of the story is God. (laughs) The God who makes promises to this just lousy sinner. The moral of the story is not that if you're quiet and you listen carefully to the voice of God and you submit your will to God and you're willing to to risk it all, then then God's going to lead you. No, it's... It's that there is a God out there who heaps outlandish promise upon promise upon promise on lousy people. There is a, if you want to know who God is, what God is like, he is like a generous hero. And so much is made of the fact that Abraham left it all behind and that we are to have a faith like Abraham. And we are to have a faith like Abraham. But I don't think it's, it's quite the way that you and I have been taught it. So let me explain that. The first five books of the Bible, we know those, they're called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was originally written by, crafted by Moses. But if you study the Pentateuch carefully, you will recognize that it went through a number of editing cycles down through the centuries. Um, there were contributions made and other strands of, of tradition were incorporated into the Pentateuch. At least that's what most scholars believe. Um, we know that the Pentateuch kind of ebbed and flowed in and out of the consciousness of the people of Israel. So there'll be some seasons in their national life where they're, they're totally thinking about God's word in the first five books and then there are other times when they've entirely forgotten it, um, it, dismissed it entirely. Well, the point in history 
where the Pentateuch is sort of fully compiled and the point of history where the Pentateuch is playing a very prominent role in the consciousness of the people of Israel is in the Babylonian captivity. When the people are, have been taken out of their land and enslaved and tortured and are, are living as slaves up in Babylon, up in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And they were, understandably, really wrestling with God's promises at that point. Desperately wondering, what about our future? Has God abandoned us? Is there any reason for us to hope? And so as they're reading this story and the, the life of the call of Abraham, I think they, heard, they saw themselves in it. Oh, he was an Ur. And God brought him out of a pagan God, pagan land, uh, lots of idols. And he, the, he took him, so if Ur is right here on the kind of the mouth of the Persian Gulf and Iraq, well, due directly west is the Arabian Desert. You can't walk from the Arabian Desert into this, the nation of Israel, the, the promised land, Cana. You've got to go up in a semicircle to the northwest to Haran, and then you, you trickle, trickle back down. That's exactly the route that when Israel came out of Babylon, they would have taken. That would have been their pilgrimage route. Here, um, God has made outlandish promises to our father Abraham. And can we believe those? Um, Can we believe that God will be faithful to everything that he has said? Here we are living as conquered subjects in Babylon, and nothing in our circumstances would indicate that anything good is going to happen to our lives. Um, to believe that God will do extraordinary things when day after day your life stinks. That describes many of our own struggles with faith, doesn't it? Um, the last couple of months, I have, I have dealt with, I, wanna, I don't want to give away any like personal details too much, but I've dealt with people who... Um, they just the family. They have family issues where they're in a really dark and desperate place. Be it a spouse, be it a kid, be it uh, extended family. Um, like if you spend enough time with another Christian and they finally drop the walls, and you discover that me- the life can, c- can become so messy that you that it almost feels hopeless. Um, that day after day, kind of the darkness. It's just utterly oppressive. I've been having conversations with people like that. But, but, but then we come to the Bible, and the Bible has all of these outlandishly wonderful promises. That we discover a God who heaps audacious promises that seem impossible given what I just experienced Monday through Friday of last week, that God is working all of this together for my good, that I am being transformed from one, from one degree of glory to another, as Paul says, that while my outer man is decaying, my inner man is being re- renewed daily, and that I will have Jesus with me always and forever. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And, and, and we're like, um, no. <laughs> um, I'm oppressed in darkness. And when Peter tells us that, that through Jesus Christ, we have been made partakers in the divine nature, you're, some of us are like, no, I, I don't. I'm not feeling that promise. I had a friend of mine email me several weeks ago, and he's, he's just uh, 
swamped by some personal sin in his life, utterly struggling and oppressed by, by this sin, and he cannot seem to shake it. Uh, and I, I know plenty of people who are oppressed by a, a hopeless marriage or um, have terrible relationship problems. And then I come to a Bible that says that, that don't you know that one day you will even, you will even judge angels? Paul says that kind of like <laughs> out of the blue. I promise you, can I believe any of this? Because what it really sounds like, it sounds like stupid talk. I, I, I almost wish I uh, titled my sermon <laughs> that stupid talk, because that's what it sounds like. Will God, will the God who, who talks this way, will he be faithful to his stupid talk promises? And that is the challenge for us right there, the challenge to trust as it was for Abraham, as it was for Israel in exile, as it has been for every Christian since. Because, I mean, if you start to read, you will discover just how outlandish are the things that he tells you, that he promises to you, uh, shall be. I think I've told you his name before. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Derek Rish, uh, Rishmawi. He's a, he's a young, I think he's, he's 30-something too. Um, he's a Christian of Arabian descent, and he writes this personal anecdote of, of an event that happened in his life. I want to read it to you. On 9-11, I, on 9/11, I was a sophomore in high school, and as soon as I heard a plane had crashed into the first tower, I distinctly remember thinking to myself, Dear God, I hope it wasn't Arabs who were responsible for this. I'm three-fourths Palestinian. At, at times, I have a distinctly Arab cast to my profile, and I knew, I just knew, that there would be backlash at high school, and I was right. That afternoon in football practice, upon discovering that I was a Palestinian, according to one educated linguist on, on the <laughs> defensive back, probably. <laughs> he proceeded to spear me in my back twice with his helmet. Thankfully, my coach caught on quickly, and he put an end to it. Still, for the next few years, I was lovingly called a Dunkun, a Taliban, and Osama, that type of stuff, by a good chunk of my teammates and friends. I do mean lovingly. It's strange, but for some reason, racial slurs were a way of bonding in the locker room. It's frustrating as those post-9-11 prejudice and fears were. None of them cut, cut quite so deeply, as did the statements of a few well-meaning Christians. They said to me uh, a few years later, I was working at the front counter at a gym in college, you know, and at he says, that being at the front counter, I would have a lot of conversations with people, with Christian and non-Christian. We chat about faith in the Bible. When one counter chat, the Middle East conflicts came up, and a Christian brother said this to me. He said, in effect, yeah, if it weren't for Abraham's mistake with Ishmael, this whole business could have been avoided. Well, for those of you who don't get the Ishmael reference, he's referring to Abraham's firstborn child by his concubine, Hagar, who gets expelled from the family. I talked to you about that earlier. Traditionally, you, you may know I, that, that Islam, uh, the Arabs, trace their lineage back to Ishmael. They trace their descent from him. 
So according to my well-meaning Christian brother at the gym, I am just Abraham's mistake. And the entire Middle Eastern battles could have been avoided if Abraham had just been patient and not fathered Ishmael. Uh, yeah, the, the world would be better if we Arabs had never existed at all. Sweet. Thanks, guys. The reason I have problems with this is, is that God placed Abraham at the headwaters of many nations. He becomes, his name goes from father, Abram, to Abraham, uh, uh, exalted father, father of many, um, because he's the father of many, many peoples. That this was part of God's blessing upon him. And this was the way that God providentially ordered history. The same God who declares that he knows the number of the hairs on your head and, and a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the consent of, of him in heaven is the same God who chose to bless Abraham as the, the father of many nations. And, but even more importantly than that, when the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians refers to this incident that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. You, you. Paul says that God was, quote, actually preaching the gospel in advance to Abraham. That that original promise that you're reading along in Genesis 12 here and you think uh, he's just talking about a large number of people. Well, he is talking about a large number of people, but not just that. That original promise didn't only refer to lots and lots of phys physical progeny, but ultimately pointed towards a great, great, great grandson <laughs> who would be the blessing to all the nations as he redeemed them by his blood. So no, I do not see myself as Abraham's mistake any more than uh, a fellow, a Jew, should see themselves as Abraham's success but rather I see it all as, as God's plan to bring peace to the nations through his beloved son. That anecdote resonated with me. I don't have a lot of experience talking with Messianic uh, uh, Christians or Palestinian Christians, but the few that I've heard from and read of, and uh, they will tell you the only way to bring, bring peace to that place is through the Prince of Peace, um, the one to whom Abraham's story pointed, the one who would put an end to the bitter acrimony by the reconciling love of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Palestinians and Palestinians and Arabs and Ukrainians and Russians and Americans would all find their ultimate reconciliation with God and with man.